0: dedicated to all my fellow teachers out there who are trying to balance many demands placed on the Contemporary Educator. I want to start by acknowledging that I live on the traditional territories of the Lekwungen-speaking peoples of the Esquimalt and Songhees nations. This is a podcast episode uh, that is meant to complement one of the blog posts on thecontemporaryeducator.com and uh, I'm talking about eating disorders so this can be a bit of a sensitive subject and it I just want to let folks know that I'm certainly not going to be offended or upset if you choose to skip this episode, or if you're needing to reach out for some support after listening to this episode, please feel free to do that as well. You can send me an email, or if you have a counselor or somebody that you talk to about your own difficulties, then please, please make sure that you reach out. The reason that I'm talking about it, and it might seem like, well, what do eating disorders and teaching have in common? What reason would there be for a teacher to be able to recognize and notice an eating disorder? Well, eating disorders are on the rise, uh, diagnosed and undiagnosed. Uh, Statistics show that approximately 9% of the population in North America struggles with a diagnosed eating disorder. So when I'm specifically saying diagnosed and undiagnosed, uh, it's because I'm really mindful that there's a lot of folks who are struggling silently. And there's there's this common misconception that an eating disorder is obvious because somebody has lost a significant amount of weight. However, really, weight loss is only characteristic of one type of eating disorder when there's an array of different eating disorders that people can be diagnosed with. There's also significant inequity in who is being diagnosed with eating disorders, with white women being predominantly the ones who are diagnosed, and a lot of folks from other demographics who are not being diagnosed, who aren't even being assessed for possible eating disorders. So I thought it could be helpful since teachers really are the ones who see their students most often throughout the year. For most of us, we're seeing our students in a lot of contexts from you know, nine o'clock in the morning until three o'clock in the afternoon, sometimes more if we've got outside of timetable stuff that we, we do with students. If you're an elementary or middle school teacher, you're with them all day throughout that entire time. If you have strong relationships with your students you're with them over lunch they might be in your classroom after school for after-school clubs or activities and we're exposed to them through at least one meal time Uh, sometimes that's more if we have them staying late in my case for rehearsal so then we've also got dinner with them or um, you know snack time after school or snack time during recess We're seeing our students through multiple mealtimes, and I'm highlighting mealtimes specifically because it's times when food is around that you're most likely to notice uh, disordered eating behavior. I just want to kind of highlight some of the inequities in how eating disorders are often diagnosed and looked at in the medical field, give you some tips on how to notice it in your students, and provide some information around what happens when a student is diagnosed or suspected of having an eating disorder. Because if a student is coming to you with a concern, they're likely coming to you because you're their safe person. The psychiatrist at the hospital or the counselor in the community mental health service isn't their person yet. And they might be really afraid about what happens if they disclose that they're struggling with their relationship to food and so it can help for you to encourage them to seek help or for you to explain what that process looks like so that students feel a little more comfortable going into the next stages of their recovery and so they feel a little more comfortable seeking that support and just kind of know what it might look like because most of our anxiety comes from the unknown it comes from a feeling of loss of control and we don't want to add to that when somebody is already experiencing a loss of control in relation to their relationship to food. The more information we can give a student, the more information we can give them about treatment and what that looks like, the more comfortable they're going to be seeking those treatment options and the more comfortable they're going to be getting on board with those treatment options. Treatment is most effective when the student understands what the problem is and when they're both willing and able to accept help. So that's kind of the intent behind this episode today. Uh, This is by no means meant to be a tool that you use as a diagnostic tool for eating disorders. Teachers are not in a position where we diagnose young people with any kind of mental health disorder. Uh, We're not in a position where we can provide treatment for anybody with a mental health disorder. We're, as teachers, that's not what our role is. And we can be there to offer support in a number of different ways. But this podcast and the subsequent blog are by no means meant to cover all of the basis in terms of um, the kind of care that a person with an eating disorder may need. So it's not a substitute. So I've already mentioned that eating disorders are on the rise. Again, when I say eating disorders are on the rise, I'm referring specifically to diagnosed eating disorders, and they account for 9% of the population, and primarily young women ages 18 to 24 are, are being diagnosed. It doesn't mean that you're not seeing signs earlier, it doesn't mean that a young person earlier wouldn't fit the criteria for a diagnosis, it just means that they're not getting support or being seen as a person with an eating disorder until the ages of 18 to 24. I think that's a really important distinction because when we see that there's an age bracket that is the most common to be diagnosed, we also think that's the age bracket that's the most common to struggle. And I wouldn't necessarily say that that is always the case. I'm not saying it's not the case, but I'm just saying we have to be mindful that it does happen younger and signs of an eating disorder can start as early as eight years old in terms of particularly girls but I think this goes across the board for any young person. People already feeling a discomfort in their body, feeling like they need to lose weight and not being satisfied with their size and shape. Now with all of that said, I'm just going to start by giving some basic diagnostic criteria. Again, not so that you can go out and diagnose because I don't think that that's either helpful or appropriate, it can help to kind of know what the signs are that a psychiatrist or psychologist would be looking for. The first commonly diagnosed eating disorder is anorexia nervosa. So this is straight out of the DSM-5, the Diagnostic Statistics Manual, the most recently updated one. And basically what they're looking for is a person who is restricting food intake, who has a pervasive fear of gaining weight, Um, They might be perseverating on possible weight gain, uh, attempt to control their weight through energy intake. Their feelings of self-worth and esteem are deeply connected to the view of their own body, image, size, shape, etc. Anorexia nervosa is the one that we most commonly see in young people because it is associated with a dramatic weight loss and we all know when we see somebody who looks like they're not eating enough and so quite often. That's the first one that people are um, quicker to diagnose or at least seek attention for. The next eating disorder that's really common is bulimia nervosa. This is characterized by recurrent episodes of eating a large amount of food, which constitutes more than what somebody else of their same size, energy level, circumstance might be eating in a restricted time period, so within a two hour window. They're, the individual feels a loss of control over food intake, and after binging, uh, there's a use of compensatory behaviors like vomiting, use of laxatives or diure- diuretics, excessive exercise, or prolonged fasting to try to "quote unquote" make up for the amount that they'd eaten in that two-hour window. Same with anorexia, there's uh, their feelings of self-worth and esteem are deeply connected to their view of their own body image, size, shape, etc. But with bulimia nervosa, it's not always characterized by significant weight loss or a person who is seen as significantly underweight for their height and age. So it can be overlooked quite often because the person might be of average size. They might be the quote unquote appropriate size and weight for their age and still struggling with a really significant eating disorder. struggling significantly with their relationship to food. The next one is binge eating disorder. Again, similar to bulimia, there's recurrent episodes of eating a large amount of food, same thing, significantly more than someone else of the same size, circumstance, energy level, uh, during a restricted time period, which is typically a two-hour window. There's a feeling a lot of loss of control over food intake, and it's marked by feelings of distress both during and after the binge episode. But it's not associated with compensatory behavior. So that means um there's no follow-up with vomiting or um use of, of laxatives or diuretics or anything like that. And then finally there There is another eating disorder, but I'm not gonna touch on that one today because that one is a little different. Um, But the last one I'm gonna talk about today is avoidant or restrictive food intake disorder. So this one is a feeding or eating disturbance, like a lack of apparent interest in eating food, avoidance based on sensory characteristics of food, concern about adverse consequences of eating. This one is much more common in younger ages. Like there could be a fear of vomiting, Young people might often develop this um, the characteristics of this disorder after they have been really sick, so they might have had a really bad flu, eaten something and vomited, and now they have this fear and discomfort with vomiting, and so now they are um, avoiding food. There's a persistent failure to meet appropriate nutritional and or energy needs, there's significant weight loss or failure to achieve expected weight gain. Uh, There's significant nutritional deficiency and dependence on internal or oral nutritional supplements, and there's a marked interference with psychosocial functioning. So like I said, this one is more characteristic of younger folks, but again, not exclusively. There's a lot of folks who can struggle with avoidant and restrictive food intake disorder. I keep saying the term disorder, and if you've listened to any of my other podcasts or read any of my blogs, I don't love... That term because it negates the context in which some of these things develop. And I think it's really important to acknowledge the kind of social context in which an eating disorder develops. You know, we live in a society where um, women, particularly, but certainly not only women, are valued based on how they appear, on their body, on their size. There's a lot of size shaming out there, both if you're quote unquote too small or quote unquote too big people are not developing eating disorders in a vacuum. And so I I much prefer talking about the relationship that somebody has to food or um, like just referring to it as their relationship to food or eating. But for the purposes of this particular episode, I'm gonna to continue to say disorders because uh, that is the kind of diagnosis that young people would receive if they were exhibiting any of these behaviors. Even though, these behaviors are certainly in a response to external circumstances and factors. So I just want to highlight that. So now that I've talked about the diagnostic criteria for an eating disorder, I just want to talk about the demographics in which people are notoriously underdiagnosed. And as a, a white cis woman, it's really important to be paying attention to what my blind spots are and it's really easy for us to fall into stereotype and status quo and not pay attention to what our BIPOC students might be experiencing or what our queer students might be experiencing. Uh, I'll post all of the um, all of the work cited in the podcast like description so if you want to read any of these statistics further please feel free to go and take a look. But i'm just going to kind of list them off so that you know what they are i'm also going to skip over some of them so if you're wanting more information on this i really encourage you to go and read the blog too if you're wanting a bit more context here first of all bipoc are significantly less likely than white people to have been asked by a doctor about eating disorder symptoms they are half as likely to be diagnosed or offered treatment black and hispanic teenagers are significantly more likely than white teenagers exhibit bulimic behavior and Asian American college students report higher rates of restriction compared with their white peers. So those are pretty staggering statistics and I think it's really important to note that at least here in BC primarily but I would I would argue across Canada most doctors are white men and it it's pretty staggering that there's these significant blind spots that are not being addressed at the moment. The other group demographic that I want to make sure to touch on are queer communities and eating disorders. Um, Gay and bisexual boys are significantly more likely to fast, vomit, or take laxatives or diet pills to control their weight. Trans college students report experiencing disordered eating at approximately four times the rate of their cis classmates. 32% of trans People report using their eating disorder to modify their body without taking hormones. 56% of trans people with eating disorders believe their disorder is not related to their physical body. And non-binary people may restrict their eating to appear thin, consistent with the common stereotype of androgynous people in popular culture. When we think of an eating disorder and we think of what we've seen of eating disorders on television, um, I think we're often drawn to the image of a, a slim... Underweight white girl. And I think we need to really broaden that scope and pay attention to how it presents itself, how an eating disorder presents itself across the spectrum of who our students are, and be really aware of the kinds of behaviors associated so that even if we're not seeing the stereotypical person with an eating disorder that we can spot the signs so that this isn't happening and we can be advocates for our BIPOC and queer students to make sure that they're getting the support that they need when it's clear how um, underserved these demographics are in many many ways but as well with eating disorders. So it's unlikely that you'll be in a situation in which you would have to, or even in which you should be asking specific questions related to diagnosing an eating disorder. But it can help to just kind of know what to look out for or what some of the red flags for an eating disorder can be. The ones that quite often present in a school or public setting. Because folks with an eating disorder, there's a lot of shame around disordered eating. And so folks who struggle with an eating disorder have gotten really good at hiding it and are really Really, quite ingenious when it comes to ways to cover their relationship to food. So these are some of the things that you can kind of look out for um, if you see a student might be struggling. The first and the, and of course the most obvious I think is an unrealistic and negative view of their own body that they may bring up in casual conversation. So maybe. You know doing a lot of modeling in front of their camera or in front of a mirror and then commenting on what their body looks like afterwards or commenting on how they think they look in a particular photo commenting on what they're what they look like in comparison to their peers or in comparison to other folks commenting on specifically the size of their body or what their body looks like or shape of their body in relationship to other people the next thing is restrictive food intake, like turning down school snacks, intentionally skipping breakfast or lunch, turning down class birthday cakes or treats that were brought in. Of course, there's a difference when a young person has a specific diagnosis of something already that prevents them from being able to eat these things or engage in these functions. Um, but this typically, um, you can see a difference, right? And and if you have an IEP, you're gonna you're gonna know what specifically. Um, the kid has to avoid. You might see them saving treats rather than eating them in front of others so they might accept the offer of cake but they might put it in their lunch kit for later. Um, they might avoid eating it all in front of others and just say that they don't like to eat in front of people but uh, you might notice that by the end of the day they go home and their lunch is still full or um, they haven't eaten all day. Or haven't really had an opportunity to eat when there wasn't anyone else around. So you're noticing that every single day it's kind of getting to be a, a situation where they're not eating. You notice food or sorry, rules around food intake, like they won't eat anything that's been prepackaged, or they suddenly um, announce that they're vegan, or they can't eat gluten or dairy or or a list of other things that are found in common foods. They avoid certain ingredients. So they say, oh, well, I won't eat anything that has um, enriched wheat flour, you know, something like that, something specific. They might have rules around what to eat with. So they might refuse to eat anything that requires you eat it with your hands. They might refuse to eat anything with a spoon. Um, They might refuse to eat anything that comes out of a plastic container, like all these kinds of things that that demonstrate a rule around food that is um, unique. You might notice some extreme dieting or fad dieting, like they might say they're doing intermittent fasting, or they might all of a sudden be doing like a liquid diet or a cleanse, or they might be immediately excusing themselves after eating in order to use the bathroom. There's excessive time spent on Instagram, and you'll notice either outward or verbal comparisons of bodies. There might be guilt around food intake, and you might hear them say things like, I can't believe I just ate that, or, oh my god, I can't believe I've eaten so much. And there's clear shame around that. They might be using exercise to burn food they've consumed. Uh, They might be celebrating weight loss and always saying things like, there's only five pounds to go. Or it often is comorbid with other mental health diagnoses like anxiety, depression, personality disorders, etc. And um, the most dangerous and possibly for me the most confusing are these pro ana sites that are out there at the moment. Their Instagram pages, and I think most of those are, are taken down pretty quickly. But there's a lot of them springing up, and then there's all these websites about it. And what a pro anacyte site is is basically pro-anorexia, and it's run by other folks who struggle with eating disorders who are encouraging disordered eating behaviors. And so they'll take measurements of their waist size and post it and encourage these these unattainable physical standards uh, and encourage other people to take the drastic and extreme measures that they've taken in order to achieve this outcome. And it's really terrifying and extremely dangerous. And so if, I, I just wanted to make sure that I mentioned them here because if you know of students who are following things like that, when I first heard a kid say, oh, I'm, I'm just on a pro site, I had no idea what that meant. And I wish at the time, this was years ago, I wish at the time I had done more questioning about it and, and knew more about it. Because back then, this was a student who I knew had historically experienced eating disorders. And when she kind of explained it to me, my understanding was that it was somebody who was offering like a support site for people to no longer experience disordered eating but that's not what they are at all it is entirely encouragement for people who are struggling um, to continue to struggle and continue to pursue extremely dramatic uh, means of achieving whatever this body image ideal is in the pro ana community so i just really wanted to make sure that you are aware of that once a young person is diagnosed um, or once they come to you to seek some help or once you um, bring up you know that you are concerned the next steps for treatment would be for them to be referred to an eating disorder clinic or an eating disorder specialist team and there's a couple of different ways that can look that can be inpatient or outpatient care inpatient means it's, it's usually run out of a hospital and they go and live inpatient um, to get treatment typically from a psychiatrist, a psychologist or a registered therapist and a um, nutritionist or dietitian. And they'll have their family involved or anybody in their community that can offer them support once they leave the hospital. This is usually in more extreme cases where the person is really, really ill and um, there's risk to their life imminent more imminent risk to their life outpatient care is usually provided when somebody is demonstrating these symptoms and it's an earlier intervention stage and similarly it will have a psychiatrist on the team a registered counselor and uh, a dietitian or, or nutritionist and they will then see their counselor at least once a week sometimes twice a week they will see their dietitian approximately the same amount of time, um, depending on how long they're in the clinic or the treatment for. It can wean off, so they'll see the dietitian or nutritionist more often at the start, and then it will start to wean off as they um, develop some skills. And they'll have a psychiatrist who provides both the diagnosis and any medication that's needed, and then they'll provide ongoing med review throughout the treatment process. The key part here is that they will have a therapist to work with them on a weekly basis at least, and this is the person who can help to work through some of these issues in relationship to food and start to help them develop a healthier relationship to food. They'll typically use treatment strategies like cognitive behavioral therapy, or more often, dialectical behavioral therapy, Dialectical Behavioral Therapy is kind of a a more focused version of some of the CBT strategies. So if you want to take a look at some CBT strategies, I encourage you to go to my blog. I have an entire post about CBT and so you can take a look at that. But DBT is a more like focused version of that. So it looks at mindfulness and um, it really focuses on distress tolerance, relationship building, boundary setting, and emotional regulation. It encourages folks to acknowledge their anxiety and dysregulation and practice ways to find themselves in the present moment. It can really support folks struggling with eating disorders to eat mindfully, focus on nourishing their bodies, how they feel both before and after they eat, um, and remain kind of in the present moment, particularly around mealtimes. And really pay attention to the things that trigger the emotional dysregulation and find out ways to manage that when the emotional dysregulation happens. You have to really know that it's happening in order to address it. And I think that's often what we lack is our ability to understand that we're dysregulated when it's happening. And so this is DBT kind of tries to find that middle ground of, okay, it's okay to have this experience. and it's not about squashing your emotional response to this experience, but it is about identifying and saying, oh, that's what's happening right now. Okay, now what does that mean for me? What do I do next? That's kind of the approach that's often taken. It's gentle. There is a bit of homework involved with DBT, but that's really important when somebody is struggling with an eating disorder because the work can't be 100 this is true of of any counseling but the work can't be 100 the therapist's work it has to be the therapist offering tools and the client is going to be more successful if they're taking those tools and utilizing them in their day-to-day life which is why in eating disorder treatment the young person's community is involved in that support process so you might have a parent who's there who will often go to the nutritionist dietitian meetings um, possibly even the psychiatric appointments depending on the young person's age and comfortability with that and really developing tools for everyone in that young person's world to support them in overcoming an eating disorder And it's not an overnight battle. It's not you start treatment, you end treatment, you're better. It's similar to addictions in that way in that it can become a lifelong battle to make sure that you're really paying attention to the patterns. That's kind of the the main gist that I really want you to get from this is that eating disorders don't always look the way that we think they're going to look. There's lots of different signs that we um, we can start to understand so that we can provide the kind of help that young people need and even though we're not in a position as teachers to provide the actual therapy and that's i again i'm just gonna harp on that that is not our role and it is not effective or healthy but uh, we can kind of see what those symptoms look like notice the signs and offer support and in the article on my blog i do talk a little bit about how to um broach this subject with a young person because, of course, I'm going to always discourage people from going up to somebody and saying, you just seem like you've lost a lot of weight. I think that's a risky approach. So I have given some suggestions on how to do that in a mindful and delicate way. And I encourage you to take a look at that blog if you're wanting a bit more information And I hope that you have found this blog, or sorry, this podcast to be helpful in giving you some of the tools uh, and and comfortability around talking about eating disorders so that it doesn't have to be as stigmatized and it doesn't have to be something that feels like this kind of nebulous area that only a therapist can see. Because the truth is, you're going to see this student long before a therapist will. And um, it can be really helpful to just know. When they may need to see the school counselor and when that school counselor can start to make outside referrals and offer that kind of support. So if you have any other questions about eating disorders, if you have any other questions about how to support a young person with an eating disorder while they're in treatment, please feel free to send me an email. Um, You can find me at thecontemporaryeducator.com And you can shoot me an email straight through my website, or you can find me on Instagram at teach.emote.repeat, and you can always DM me on there, and I am happy to answer any questions.